Amen. Our sins are many, but the, the mercy of Christ is more. Uh, we've talked about the fact before that we cannot outsin his grace. And when we do sin, there is abundant mercy with the Lord. And so we praise the Lord for that. Good singing today. Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your justice. We worship you because you are worthy of worship. And so we pray that as we look at this passage in front of us, you might give to us grace and wisdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Where can one find rest for a guilty conscience? Uh, Many strategies have been employed, and interestingly enough, whether one is religious or not, we all universally struggle with guilty consciences. Uh, And of course, many false religions have been invented to deal with this problem. And even those who would call themselves atheists, uh, though they do not look for rest in a religion per se, they still are looking for it and they still are trying to find it in some form or fashion. One such example, I'll give you a couple of examples of ways in which we seek to find this. One such example is uh, the Roman Catholic Church celebrates every April 2nd the feast day of St. Mary of Egypt. Mary was born in 344 and she entered a life of prostitution at age 12. One day she found herself outside of a church and could not enter, uh, even though she wanted to. And one Catholic source says that she um, turned uh, to Mary, uh, whose picture faced her in the porch. She vowed to do penance if she might enter and stand like Magdalene beside the cross. She entered in and knelt before Mary, and on leaving the church, a voice came to her which said, Pass over Jordan, and thou shalt find rest. This is a story in the Catholic Church. She did go into the desert. She did go into the wilderness. And what did this promised rest? She was promised to find rest. What did this look like? It looked like her living in the wilderness in isolation for 47 years doing penance. Finally, at the end of 47 years, she met a priest who gave her communion, and then she died. Is that the rest that we're talking about? The rest of retreating into the wilderness and living in isolation for 47 years? For some, the answer to finding rest comes in the form of penance. Other people search for rest elsewhere, various varieties of masochism, or self-harm are frequently used as an attempt to clean a guilty conscience. I did this bad thing, and therefore I deserve to suffer for this, and so I will punish myself in some kind of a way. One sometimes finds a temporarily soothing effect to this because they're trying to soothe the conscience, and of course it doesn't last. Other people search elsewhere. Various forms of what uh, secular psychologists call OCD are sometimes used to find rest for a guilty conscience. One might, for example, try to recite a repetitive and ritualistic prayer after a sin in hopes that it will quiet the conscience, and so on and so forth. Unbelievers will go to secular therapists, relaying, I did this and I did this with the hopes that the therapist will say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about that, don't let your conscience bother you anymore. 
And there are many of other places where we will run to find rest for guilty consciences. The question is, what is the biblical solution to this? Is it an elaborate form of penance? Do we have to climb the steps? Do we have to say this prayer in this way? Do we have to pray to this idol or retreat into the wilderness or do this or do that? The book of 1 John, verses 5 through 10, gives to us this answer. And we're going to use the following outline today. Uh, You'll have to uh, forgive me for my uh, lack of creativity in this outline. But we're going to see a foundational truth and then practical implication number one, number two, and number three. I do have this outline for you on uh, the paper that we did hand out, and hopefully that's helpful to you just to kind of understand a little bit of where we're going here. Let's read this passage in front of us. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say... We have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Beginning here in verse 5, a foundational truth. We know that a particular attribute about God that is going to be essential to understand the rest of the text. And of course, this is uh, one of the important aspects of theology and doctrine. We understand that having an accurate understanding of God and his character and his attributes and the theology about God uh, branches out into the practical Um, uh, things that we do in life. And so we read in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is, this is theology, this is doctrine, this is attributes of God, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. This is a foundational truth about God. It is a line in the sand moment It is a look at the source of all things, the fountainhead itself. We are understanding from this verse how theology affects practice, how doctrine affects conduct, how belief determines behavior. And the truth, this truth, this doctrinal truth that will affect everything that we do is simple. God is light. Now, God and his word are described as light many times in the Bible. We understand that the fundamental attribute about light is that it reveals things, okay? We all know Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It reveals the path in front of me. God is revealed here to be the kind of God who we might say brings things to light. He himself is true, and he also brings truth to bear on everything, We might say then that to be in the light is to be in truth. And in this passage, I would suggest to us that we are to understand the light metaphor as exposure. You turn on a light and suddenly you can see everything in the room. Darkness then could be understood as hiding or concealing something. And of course, there's a relevant passage in John's gospel that makes this clear. John 3 19 through 21, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light. Why? 
because their works were evil. It's easier to hide and conceal our sinful works in the darkness. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be what? Exposed. So do you see now the connection here between the, when the Bible is talking about light, it's specifically talking about it in terms of exposure. We don't want to come into the light as sinners because we will, uh, our sinful deeds will be seen. Okay? And then, of course, who, uh, the rest of the passage here, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Unbelievers do not like the light because it exposes. And so to say that God is a God of light is to say fundamentally that God exposes. He reveals truth. He makes things known that were hidden. Now, this is important for many reasons, as we're going to see implications in the passage. But I want to give to you one reminder of a cultural reason why this is important. And that is, we have been saying for the last several weeks that the book of 1 John was written in the context of a response to a heresy going on that was an early form of Gnosticism in the church. Okay? Gnosticism as a philosophy did not come out in full force till later, but you're dealing with some of the initial roots of this philosophy at this time. And so one of the things that the Gnostics emphasized was they emphasized the importance of hidden knowledge or hidden truth. You remember that uh, thing we talked about last week, the, the Bible code, right? We have the insight to reveal this hidden knowledge to you, okay? This is kind of... It carried on in the tradition of this Gnostic kind of emphasis. What's interesting here is that John is refuting the popular doctrine or theology of the day or the false teaching of the day. He's refuting it in these subtle jabs throughout 1 John. And one of these subtle jabs is God is a God of light. He's not this, this God of hidden knowledge that you have to have special insight. He simply has given to us the word of God. He's revealed it to us and it's open and accessible and understandable. And so you don't need to go digging through the text for hidden meanings. It's simply all there. And so God is light. He brings everything to light. He exposes things. He is truth. And there are three implications of this reality that we see in the passage. The first one is in verses six through seven and it's set up as a contrast. If we say this, but if this, okay, and there's a contrast going on here. The first implication of God being a God of light, implication number one, the, the outflow of this, something that flows out of the fountainhead of truth. The first implication is that those people who walk in darkness do not have fellowship with God. If you are walking in darkness, you do not have fellowship with God. Okay, let's say it a different way. Those Conceal their sin, have no fellowship. Conceal your sin, hide it, you don't have fellowship with God. You'll note here the statement at the beginning of verse 6 if we say, if we say, if we claim, one recalls the old adage, actions speak louder than words. If you say to your spouse, I love you, but you never demonstrate that ever in any kind of a practical way, then there is a reason to be suspicious of that claim. Likewise, if Christians say that we have fellowship with God, but we always are hiding and concealing our sins, then we have a good reason to be suspicious 
of that claim. Notice the comparison between verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 describes the person who walks in darkness, and verse 7 describes the person who walks in the light. Note verse 6. If we say we have fellowship, if we say, if we claim we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, hiding our sins, concealing them, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, there are three in each of these implications we're going to see that there are different groups. The first group here in verse 6 is the, is the liars. Okay, we have the liars. And the liars are those who say, I have fellowship with God, but they're hiding and concealing their sin. People who claim to be Christians, but walk in darkness, never exposing their sin, never letting their sin be exposed, never confessing their sin. Those people are liars. They're not Christians. Now, the, the, the passage here presents to us a corollary. You have the group of people who walk in darkness that are described as liars. And then you have the group of people who walk in the light. That's in verse 7. If we walk in the light. okay. If we say, verse 6, but if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, looking back to the character of God, we have what? Fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what he's saying here now is if you walk in the light, you have mutual Christian fellowship with one another. Remember, we have to have vertical reconciliation and fellowship before we can have horizontal. And so he's saying if you're walking in the light, we now have horizontal fellowship with one another. And you also have cleansing, spiritual cleansing from Christ. And so we have two opposing realities. We have those who walk in darkness, those are liars. And we have those who walk in the light, and they have fellowship and cleansing from sin. Now, more specifically, what does it mean to walk in darkness, and what does it mean to walk in the light? I mean, we want to walk in the light, right? What does this mean? Remember that we said that light reveals, it exposes things. So very broadly speaking, for Christians to walk in the light means that they walk in the exposure and the revelation of God's word. Meaning that I am okay with God's word putting its finger on me and saying, you're wrong. Here's another way of saying it. When you look at scripture and you see that the Bible points out sin in your life, whose side do you take? Do you take your side? That's walking in darkness. Well, it's okay. It was, it was okay this time. I did it. Was a, it was, but I, or do you take God's side? What you say about me, Lord, is correct. I've sinned. That's the difference between walking in darkness and walking in light. Of course, in the physical world, if you're walking in a, in a field in, in the middle of the night, you will trip and fall and not see where you're going. You'll trip in a gopher hole or something like that. But if you have a flashlight with you, you can shine the flashlight and you see everything and you can avoid the pitfalls and you understand 
all that's going on around you. In the same way, those who walk in the light, according to this passage, do not stumble. We see this in, again, going back to John's gospel. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Those who walk in the light can see clearly. Those who walk in darkness will stumble. They're unaware of their surroundings. To walk in light means that your sins are exposed. You understand them for what they are. And you cannot hide. Now, we have a tendency to be okay with walking in the light if that means that we just get to give a general nod to sin. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. That is not walking in the light. We're talking about specific, and we're going to see this in a minute, specific acknowledgement and specific confession of specific sins. True walking in the light goes deeper than that. It goes to the core. I have to be seen for who I really am. True walking in the light is very painful. Okay? Confess your sin to God, that's painful. You confess your sin to other people, that's painful. Because now, what are they going to think of me? Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions, we might say whoever walks in darkness concerning his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes him will find mercy. This is very painful. This is why the scripture oftentimes uses uh, imagery that kind of borders on being uncomfortable for us. It uses imagery of stripping someone bare to expose them physically in order to demonstrate what it's like to expose someone spiritually. Of course, there are many passages on this, but one passage is Jeremiah 49.10. I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. There is a certain kind of vulnerability that we feel when we are stripped physically, and he uses that uncomfortable feeling that you have to talk about the fact that that's what it means to expose our sinfulness. Ah, I don't even want to talk about that because that's so uncomfortable. And that's what he's driving at here. In the same way that you are repulsed by physical exposure, you are even more so repulsed by spiritual exposure. We want to give every last excuse in the book to show why we were justified to do such and such. Those who walk in darkness are those who are fundamentally different people in different situations. Those who walk in darkness may come to church and talk as if they were a perfectly sanctified Christian, but at home, completely and totally different personality. That's walking in darkness. It's it's hiding, concealing. I'm not going to show who I really am in this particular moment. What you are at home is what you are, by the way. Okay. Uh, what you are here is not really what... We've had plenty of time to prepare for this. We've, 
We've all had our coffee. We've all gotten dressed. We've gotten cleaned up. We've made sure our faces look great and all that. We've had plenty of time to mentally prepare to come in here, and we're all ready to go, and yes, okay? But who are you when you are in home, at home and you've not had any time to prepare anything? That's who we are. Walking in the light, by the way, does not mean that you are a morally perfect being. Rather, it means that you're walking with the spotlight of God's word shining on you. Okay, we're going to see a little bit more of this contrast uh, really throughout the whole letter of 1 John because he emphasizes this theme here. But let's go for now to the second practical implication. Number two, verses 8 through 9, we read this. If we say we have no sin, again, another if statement. If we say we have no sin, there's a contrast again. Compare this to verse 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If, however, on the other hand, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is significant to note that verse 8 describes to us one of the world's strategies to clean a guilty conscience. The world's solution many, many, many times is verse 8, and that is to deny that we have sin. You can see this in the public sphere all the time, right? Suddenly, there's no such thing as sin anymore in the, in the public realm. There's no such thing as wrongdoing anymore in the, in the sphere. And why is this going on? Because we have guilty consciences. All of our consciences plague us about different things. And so how do we deal with that? Well, it's easy. Just deny that it's sin in the first place. That's the world strategy. Um, John says that if that's your strategy, then you are deceiving yourself. This is, by the way, again, the position of the early Gnostics. John is responding to this. If we claim that we have no sin, then we are deceived. And this, by the way, is the second group. Remember I said there were three groups? First group is the liars. Okay, now we have those who are deceived. The people who are deceived are people who say they have no sin. I've told you the Spurgeon story before of being at a conference and dumping the milk on the guy's head. I know I've told you that a couple of times. Um, I, I came across another Spurgeon story, and you know how some of these stories get, and might be the same story, might be a different story. Anyways, I'm going to read to you this one, uh, because it's a very similar situation. may even be the same situation, um, but, this, this, uh, but, but let me read this to you um, to understand what it means to say that we have no sin. It is said that Spurgeon was once confronted by a man who claimed to be without sin. Intrigued, the preacher invited him home to dinner. After hearing the claims through, he picked up his glass of water and threw it in the man's face. Understandably, the visitor was highly indignant and expressed himself very forcefully to the preacher about his lack of courtesy, to which the wise man Spurgeon replied, Ah, you see, the old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. <laughs> Many of us can certainly relate to how quickly the old man can be revived. 
very quickly. In most cases, as Spurgeon discovered, a simple glass of water will do the trick. In other cases, someone just has to call you some sort of a name, and the old man comes right to the forefront. The point is that we as believers must be very careful that we do not claim sinless perfection. Most of us probably understand that, at least in theory. Okay? But let me just add something to this as well. It is also tempting for us to think that because we haven't committed the quote-unquote big sins, whatever those might be, that I'm not really that bad of a sinner. I would suggest to us that we need to be very careful, very, very careful about minimizing the seriousness of our sin. And we sometimes share testimonies. I, was, I, was, I grew up in a Christian home. I was saved at a young age. Um, and so I didn't really commit all of these big kind of sins. You committed big sins. <laughs> we are wretched people apart from Christ. Now we thank God for Christ. And we praise him that his mercy is more And that he forgives us and cleanses us and all of these kinds of things. But just be careful that you do not minimize the significance of your sin. If you do, then the Bible says you are deceived. Now, what is the contrast to this? If you deny your sin, on the one hand, if we say we have no sin, then you're deceived. If, on the other hand, you do what? Confess. First John 1 John 1.9 is probably one of the most well-known verses in all of the New Testament. In fact, some of you may have even memorized this. And if you have not memorized this, I would encourage you to memorize this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hold on a second. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Do you see the simplicity of having rest? It's in Christ. This statement is given in contrast to those who claim they are sinless. The opposite of this, there's the group of people who says, we have not committed sins. You're deceived if you believe that. But let me contrast that with this other group of people. And this other group of people acknowledges that they have sins and they regularly confess their sins. This, by the way, also is a contrast with verse 6. There are those who walk in darkness and hide. And then there are those who walk in their light. Confession is a fundamental attribute of those who walk in the light. If you walk in the light, you confess. You confess liberally. (laughs) Because we're always sinning. The Greek word to uh, confess means to say the same thing. 
Basically, what this means then is that we are, we are agreeing with God. We are saying the same thing about our sin that God says about it. God says, this is sin. And I say, I agree with you, God. That is sin. I side with him instead of with myself. Instead of saying that it isn't a big deal, we acknowledge that it is an affront to a holy God. It is a holding up of the fist into God's face. And this is the answer to our initial opening illustration. We asked, where do we find rest? Do we find it here? Is it in penance? Is it in this? Is it in that? Do we have to go into the woods for 50 years to kind of finally do enough to work it off? This is the answer, and this is the simplicity of it all. Finding rest for guilty consciences is found in simple confession. In fact, it is so simple that the initial human impulse is to say, it can't be that easy. It cannot be that simple. And yet that's what the gospel is. It is sufficient. And when you have your heart condemning you for your sin, your conscience condemning you, understand that it is sufficient. Look at 1 John 3.20. We're going to get to this, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But he says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. What this means is that our hearts are going to condemn us and plague us. And our consciences are going to nag at us. And what we have to understand is the simple truth that when I confess, he forgives it. And he's greater than all of that. And when God says it's forgiven, it's forgiven. When God says it's done for, who are you to question his authority? Are you more pious than God? God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Are you holier than God? God says it's done for. We confess our sin and that is it. It is very difficult to overstate the simplicity of this Christian doctrine. It is not complex. It is not complicated. It does not require a PhD to understand. It does not require you to go to Bible college to to comprehend. And this really, again, is the subtle jab at the early Gnostics. They loved complex hidden truths. And he's just simply just throwing it out here that it's just so simple. It's revealed and it's open. Confess, forgiven, clean conscience. End of story. And so the application here is quite simple. You are not to conceal your sin, but let it be exposed to the light. To confess it to the Lord. He will forgive you. That is a promise. Now, by the way, it is simple, but it's not easy. There's a difference between those two things, right? The, 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 the truth behind biblical confession and repentance is one of the simplest truths in the entire scripture to understand. But it is so hard because you have to get rid of your pride. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I hope that every single person in this room right now has read Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Uh, If you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, go buy it and read it this week, okay? I want to read to you an exchange that happened in Pilgrim's Progress 
between Christian and Apollyon, uh, Christian is being accused by Satan for all of his failings and his sin. And so Christian says, or Apollyon accused and says, you almost fainted when you set out, when you almost choked in the swamp of despond. You also attempted to get rid of your burden in the wrong way. Instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off, you sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all you do and say. What does Christian say to this accusation? He walks in the light. I want to show to you what a biblical response to this would be by walking in the light. Christian says, all of this is true. And much more that you have failed to mention, Christian agreed. But the prince, whom I now serve and honor, is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country, for there I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them. I have been sorry for them and have obtained pardon from the prince. Some of you know that Martin Luther had a very similar uh, sentiment that he expressed that I think reflects 1 John 1, 9. And Luther put it this way. He said, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there shall I be also. This is exactly what it means to walk in the light. This is exactly it. To walk in the light is to walk in continual confession. Yes, I have sinned. Do you want the list? (laughs) How long do you have? I've sinned, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done this, and I've done that. But what of it? I know Christ, and he forgives. And he will welcome me into his kingdom one day. To walk in the light is where you don't conceal it. You don't hide it. You don't minimize it. You don't make excuses for it. You acknowledge it in full, and you repent of it. This ought to be our go-to response when someone accuses us. Our initial response when someone accuses us of wrongdoing, right, is to kind of go into protection mode and get on the defense. Our initial response should be, um, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) I've got a lot more. You acknowledge it in full. You repent of it. Now, I want to point out to something very interesting and unusual in this particular verse. And I want, and I want, to, I want to draw our, attentions to this, to the, our attention to the specific words, um, faithful and just. Now, imagine with me for a moment that you are found guilty of a crime. 
and you are in a courtroom, and as you're in a courtroom, the judge walks in, and someone leans over to you and, and, and taps you on the shoulder and says, this judge is the most faithful and just judge in the whole state. <clears throat> I'm trembling at that moment. <laughs> what do I want to hear? I want them to lean over to me and say, by the way, this is the most merciful judge in the whole state. That's what I want to hear. Which seems very odd then in 1 John 1, 9, that we have not the word mercy, but the word just, and the word faithful. I don't want to face God's justice. I want to face his mercy. And so these two words seem a little bit out of place here. I would suggest to us that when he says, when he says that God is faithful and just to forgive us, I would suggest to us that those words in this context are more comforting to the human soul than the word mercy. More comforting. <clears throat> Why? Why would it be more comforting to hear that God's forgiveness is compatible with his justice than hearing that God's forgiveness is compatible with his mercy? Why? Because mercy is not the barrier to forgiveness. Justice is. What is the barrier to forgiveness, it's justice. How can God remain just? That's the question. The question is not, how can God remain merciful? This is so perplexing that God could be merciful and forgive. That's not what's perplexing. What's perplexing is, wait a second, you're telling me God forgives and he's just? That doesn't, go, that doesn't work out that way. God's justice demands payment. And I will say this, God's justice is inflexible. God will never flex and forego his justice, ever. This is not in the character of God. Otherwise, he could not be said to be just. So what is perplexing here is that you have justice and forgiveness together. If you're sitting in a courtroom, for example, and the judge says... <clears throat> I'm merciful, you can go free now. The first question I have is, wait a second, can he do that? <laughs> is he authorized to do that? I'm not questioning his mercy. Yeah, he's got a lot of mercy. But I, but I want to know, how is this just? How have you overcome that barrier to letting me go? It's almost as if John is saying, listen up, guys, folks. Hold on a second. Pause just a second. Don't, don't worry here. God will forgive you, and he will maintain his justice in so doing. You don't have to worry, guys. There's no violation of, divine, of his divine attributes. God does not contradict his character in order to do this. God does not sweep sin under the rug in order to do this. God maintains his perfections, his attributes. He does not waver at all, and in that he gives you forgiveness. Now, how is this possible? Well, let's touch on the faithfulness part first. 
In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, 34, God made a promise of what the new covenant would look like. And in that promise, he says this, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God made a promise that those in the new covenant would receive forgiveness of sins, and he would not hold that against them. So when you see the promise in 1 John 1, 9, that God is faithful, take that word first, faithful to forgive, our mind is flooded with Old Testament promises. And we know that God never violates his word or his character. And so because God promised he would forgive, he's faithful in carrying that out. I will forgive you. That's comforting to know that. But what about justice? Justice says you deserve punishment. One writer says this, the fact that the penalty for our sin was paid by Jesus means that God will not demand a second payment. In Christ, the work is accomplished once and for all, and we are forgiven. The justice of God requires him to forgive because the debt has been met. Do you see the significance of Jesus Christ in the centrality of forgiveness? It was necessary for Christ to die. And the death of Christ allowed God the Father to forgive while maintaining his justice. Why Christ? Because God was not prepared and is not prepared and never will violate any of his character. And he was unwilling to forgive us if the cost was to his own perfection to his own holiness, and to his own justice. And so the way that the path that he forged was through Christ. I will not violate my justice, but I will fulfill and satisfy my justice by pouring out my wrath and my anger on them, on my son, instead. He pours it all out in full on Christ. Christ faces the full wrath, the full fury, the full anger of God against you and against me. His justice is satisfied, and now he says, I can forgive you. The love, the depth of it, is hard for us to fathom. That God would go to that length to forgive us and to provide us with something so simple. Confess and you're forgiven. Piper says this about this uh, passage. This text says God would be unjust, not merely unmerciful, not to forgive us if we confess our sins. Why is that? Why is forgiveness now a matter of justice and not merely a matter of mercy? 
The answer is that Jesus has shed his blood to make a just recompense for all who confess their sins and take refuge in him. Thus, God would be unjust not to forgive them, not because they've honored him by their sinless lives. It doesn't come because we're great people. We're sinners. But because they take refuge in the name of Christ, of Jesus. The death of Jesus so honored the Father and so vindicated the glory of his name that God is bound by his justice, not just his mercy, to forgive all who stake their lives on the worth of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. It doesn't seem like it should fit, but it does fit because of the justice of God. You see, when human beings, we don't have a very good picture of what mercy looks like. When human beings are merciful, they can sometimes be merciful at the expense of justice. In fact, many times. But not so with God. When God forgives, he does so at the fulfillment of justice, not the expense of it. And just like that, Christians have rest from guilty consciences. This brings us back to the third implication. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Those who don't confess their sins and instead claim they have not sinned at all blaspheme God. We have those who are liars. We have those who are deceived. And then we have a third group of those who blaspheme God. Walk in the light then. Confess your sin. So where do we go from here? Well, the overarching thrust of this passage today is to rebuke false teaching while at the same time encouraging us as Christians that there is rest for guilty consciences. And by God's grace, that rest does not look like a list of hoops that you and I have to jump through. And then we get to the end of our lives and maybe, just maybe, we can slide on through. We don't put shackles on people and say, you can be right with God if only you do these things. Many, many people are bound. Their consciences are bound. Their lives are bound. They are slaves to unjust, false, unbiblical ideologies, worldviews, and religions. All telling them the same thing. We have the key. We have the answer to your guilty conscience. Come to us. Jump through these hoops, and Christ just says, come to me, confess your sin, and you're forgiven. This passage, then, ultimately is about Jesus Christ and about his sufficiency to satisfy the justice of God, his mercy to forgive us in full. And My encouragement to us is to simply rest in him today. If you are an unbeliever and you don't know Christ as Savior, Stop chasing all of these solutions and simply repent and believe on Christ. He gives that salvation freely and without cost.
Three points of application. The first one is walk in the light by confessing your sin instead of concealing it. Don't conceal, don't hide, don't pretend to be someone you're not. Simply confess your sin. The second point of application is that uh, is be careful not to deny or minimize your sin. Um, we have to recognize that we are great sinners, but we do have a great Savior. And then the third point of application is simply to rest in God's faithfulness and justice to forgive your sin. This is sufficient, and no penance is required to have a clean conscience. You don't have to jump through all these hoops. You simply come to Christ. Thank you, God, for this time today. Thank you for your word and its sufficiency. We thank you for the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you might help us, Lord. As we go from this place, that we would honor you with our lives, that we would honor you specifically by walking in the light. We understand from this passage that walking in the light means that we walk in this exposure. We understand that it means that we walk in confession. We understand that it means that we walk in humility, knowing that we have not secured our own place with you, but that is something you have accomplished in full. And so we praise you for this. We worship you for this in Christ's name. Amen.